with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Somebody say Noah. Amen. We're going to be talking about Noah today. And as we do, I want you, if you have ever learned this story, to open up your mind to see it from a new perspective. How many have heard the story of Noah before? How many have watched uh, Steve Carell when he was Noah? Anybody remember that? Uh, Evan Almighty. That's right. Thank you. So definitely wipe that story out of your mind. (laughs) Any reference you have of this story already, keep there, but just let your mind be fresh and anew to hear this, okay? Because the reason why I want you to be fresh in hearing this story about Noah, we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. So good to see everybody here in second service is what we're doing. First service is John. Is the reason why I want you to hear it fresh and anew is because so often I think we miss uh, the practical application of what it would feel like to be Noah. I think we like, we put David, you know, versus Goliath like on a pedestal. We think Noah's, you know, just like some really special person, and we forget like really what's going on. And then as we get into the detail of who actually dies in the flood, I think we just kind of bypass that when we give our children like Noah's Ark little bath toys, okay? Because uh, there's, <laughs> there's going to be some sad parts of this story. You, you know what I'm saying here? How many know the story of Noah's flood? Okay, not many people make it. Okay, and the reason why I want you to hear this afresh and anew is because I don't want that to be okay with you. It's not meant to uh, to make us f- feel that God's a meanie, but we are supposed to be disturbed by it. Let me start off by saying this about the story, because sometimes uh, there's these arguments that come against our, our Christian faith, and this would probably be a good place to start. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Uh, we're going to start in, in sex, because I want to talk a little bit about faith here in a moment. But I want you to hear this. People who bring objections against our Bible based on a moral code that they think the Bible doesn't follow is the height of hypocrisy. Let me explain that to you. If we take this Bible and bring it to Judge Judy to try to judge it, what are we now saying about Judge Judy? We're saying Judge Judy is over the Bible. How many get that? So it's like, uh, Judge Judy, here's the Bible. I've got a problem with it, but Pastor Joe thinks it's amazing. So Judge Judy, will you make the decision? You know, so now, like, imagine I'm coming before Judge Judy, and there's a person over here. We'll call them the skeptic, okay, the skeptical Karen, okay? And they're just so upset about the Bible, and it does all of these things. And then it, and, and it seems like in this scenario, I, I would be appealing to Judge Judy. But Judge Judy, God is really a good God, and it's fair. Let me explain that to you. How many know the moment we show up to a court case like that, we are now saying that Judge Judy is over this? Does everybody get that? What we are saying is no one sits over this. Judge Judy, to be Judge Judy even in our nation, had to swear on this. So everyone is held accountable to this. So let me just help you real quick to understand how you use what the skeptic does against their argument to show that they have no place to stand. If they are making a moral argument against the story of Noah, I want to know where do you get your morals from? Okay, so this is on trial. Uh, You want to judge this. Tell me where you get your morals from. And this is where you'll start to see them backpedal and stutter. Well, we we all just know what's right and wrong, and I'm a human, and I, I just know. 
Are you also a human that believes in evolution, that you came from the goo to the zoo to you? So you're just molecules in motion. Your brain is no different than me taking a, a, a bottle of Sprite, shaking it up, and opening it, fizzing. That's all you're doing up here. That's your moral code based on chemicals in motion? If we came from the goo to the zoo to you and we are chemicals in motion, there is no moral argument. There's nothing to be upset over. Are ants arguing over today what happened to their anthill? How many have ever seen National Geographic? Have you ever seen any of them hold a court case? Have you ever seen them bring the lions over? You know, the little bunny rabbits. Hey, hey guys, we're going, we, you know, we need to bring the lions here to court because they keep eating us. Uh, as I told you last week or a couple weeks ago, we have bunnies in our backyard. I've got a bunny hutch because I want them to be safe and live in my bunny hutch so that I can eat them and raise them, okay? But now there's a problem. Guess what's happening in my backyard? There's a fox there now. He's looking for the bunnies. I want to eat him too. I don't know if I can. I have to look that up. Because I'll definitely trap him and eat him as well. But then this is what I said to my kids, because they have seen it, and I think I've only watched him brush by my window one time, but they've actually seen the fox. My wife has seen it a few times. This is what I said. Well, if we don't eat the bunnies, the fox will eat the bunnies. Wouldn't you rather eat the bunnies than the fox? And then they're like, no, let the fox eat the bunny. But how many know if they get hungry enough, they're eating that fox and the bunny? But once again, should we bring the fox to trial? Court is in order. You know, like Zootopia, if anybody's seen some of these kids' shows. Court's in order. We're now bringing the foxes to court today. And the bunny rabbits are there, to, you know, wiggling their little tail, you know, their little cute little ears, telling their story. Hey, the fox is coming to eat me. And then someone judge. No, there's no judgment there. So why is there a judge on earth? Just, just in the earthly sense. Why are there earthly judges? If we're just molecules in motion. The reason why there's earthly judges is because they're supposed to be imitating God the judge. That's why you can say only God can judge me to Christians, but you can't say that in front of court tomorrow. <laughs> well, by the way, judge, only God can judge me. He's going to say, no, I'm, I'm here on behalf of God to judge you. Okay? So judges are a part of a moral system made by humans who are in the image of God reflecting the justice of God. Everybody say justice. Thank you. So now, to give you that as a foundation, when you hear the story of only eight people surviving and probably the population at that time in the millions dying in a flood, some of them clawing at the doors, holding on to their children, is God a big meanie or is he still just? According to the Bible, he's still just. And just to uh, step on your toes more, if Noah's story in the past makes you upset, there's one that will make you even more upset because the next judgment is by fire. 300 million die. The blood is as high as a horse's head for over 100 miles. Our Bible's very consistent from beginning to end. God is the God of all flesh, and he can do with our flesh whatever he wants, including our children when judgment comes. And I know that's hard for us because we see the children as being innocent and what about them deserves this kind of punishment. But my friends, we have to understand the curse of the fathers comes to the children when nations are judged. And we have to understand God judges nations. When we, as an, an American nation, not saying everything we've done is just, when we drop bombs on Hiroshima after telling them judgment is coming, you better leave, and we sent down the, 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 the pamphlets after that, if you were in that area, man, woman, child, you were done. And you might say, well, that's horrific. 
But that was a form of judgment upon a nation saying, stop fighting with us. We're taking the battle to you now. And I know some may object to that. But remember, the moment you object to that, I want to know what your moral standard is. I want to know now what is your, why you go to the Bible? That's just the book written by men. Yes, I never said it was written by the angel Gabriel or a talking cat. It's written by men. That's who writes books. But I want to now ask you, what book written by men are you using? Dear Diary. Is it your own book? Dear Diary. I'm so mad at God. Is it your book? Is it Nietzsche's book? Because Nietzsche agrees with me that unless you have this book, there is no meaning to any of it. Nihilism is true according to most atheists. I have books by atheists in my, my, uh, my Kindle at any time to bring up to atheists who make moral arguments. And I'm like, oh, you are such a bad atheist. Let me take you to Dr. Alex Rosenberg, the Atheist Guide to Philosophy, and let me give you his Ten Commandments of Atheism that say no morals exist, including cannibalism, pedophilia, rape, murder, or any. There's no such thing as a moral code. It's just an illusion of your mind. And then I have Bertrand Russell as well in the historical philosophy of the Western civilized world. And he talks about how David Hume had broke down the barriers of the church and the state and, and the idea that you could enforce these things over people's consciences. But Hume himself realized he went too far. He cut out the branch on what he was standing. If we don't accept anything by faith, but we only accept materialism, how do we know that we're even here? How do we know tomorrow will even come? And how do we know the past ever existed? Materialism by itself cannot give you a foundation for living. And then Bertrand Russell in his own book talks about human, says it has not been defeated until our day. And that means unless we have a foundation outside of materialism, we can't know the difference between being rational or being a poached egg. So I say, what atheist do you want me to go to to do you a favor to teach you, my atheist friend? You have no moral argument. Now, who does have moral arguments? Other people with different books and different men. Well, I believe in the Bhagavad Gita, Hare Krishna. Okay, let's talk about that then. Oh, I believe in Muhammad, the Quran. Let's talk about that. Oh, I believe in Buddha, you know, in the, in the different writings. Okay, let's talk about that. Now it's the book and the man, the book and the man. I'll take this book and Jesus Christ over that man any day. Are you listening to me? I'll take that challenge anytime, any place, any day. And the reason is, is because Christ raised from the dead and validated his moral code. And most of those religions want Jesus on the team, though he called them thieves and robbers. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Buddhists make books comparing the Buddhist teachings to Jesus' teachings. Hindus have books. They gave one to me comparing Jesus' teachings to the Bhagavad Gita. I have it in my house and these, and these things. You'll never see a genuine Christian doing those things. <laughs> hey, you know, Jesus and Krishna, they're like the same. No, they're not. <laughs> I mean, if Christians have a reputation, it's to say that pretty clearly. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, my, you know, uh, friend of, of religion, you know, studying these comparative religions, whether you like it or not, you do have to be honest, we Christians are pretty centered on Jesus. We are inclusive of everyone to accept Christ, but it is an exclusive claim. In other words, it's an invitation to the inclusivity of Christ. So it's an inclusive claim to everybody, but it's exclusive to come. Uh, another example would be all the world is invited to this party. The only uh, thing that you have to do is come through the door of Jesus Christ. Amen? So that, that, you know, the very thing that they sometimes try to mock us with, and they say, oh, you as Christians, you're so harsh. You're so down on other these religions. Well, when was the last time you had a Hindu knocking at your door? You know, when was the last time you had a Buddhist? You see, we're quite evangelical for our faith. Why? Because we actually believe the invitation matters, and we believe you matter.
And we'll talk about children in just a little bit in unreached people groups if we have time and how God judges them eternally because there is also an eternal judgment. But make no doubt about this. There are judgments upon this earth that come upon even what we would consider innocent people because when the land is judged, the land is judged. And I'm not ashamed of that. I stand by that. And I even believe that's a part of just war theory, though it should not be our first option. In other words, at some point, you have to tell the bully to back off. And at some point, you need to take responsibility for your actions. And as people of a culture, we have to understand we will be held responsible for our actions. Maybe one last, uh, one quick side note. I was, uh, you know, going through Instagram, seeing that there was a man like in his 50s. He came out now as a six-year-old girl, left his wife and children, and is now living with an elderly couple as he sucks on a bobo. Has anybody else seen this? It was circulating. I don't know. Somebody on my friend list must have shared it or something because I saw it. It's a true story, and you can look it up. Identifies as a six-year-old girl. Just imagine what our enemies, God forbid, Iran or China, anybody that would want to pick a fight with us, imagine what they see when they think like this. Well, I hope they all pretend they're six-year-old girls because we'll come and kick their butt and enslave them all. How many know the moment that man left his house, let's say we're in a different kind of environment, how many know the moment that man left his house and started pretending like a six-year-old girl, if somebody can come in and rape and pillage the family now? What I'm saying is he's no longer the head of his house. He's no longer there as a protection. Is everybody tracking with me? And so now, you know, think we live in a civilized society where they're not just going to come and do that, that we have police and other men who will actually act like men and women and not pretend to be six-year-old girls. Thankfully, not everybody's like him. But my point in saying that is when people live in sin, there are consequences to those behaviors. That house does not now have a husband. It does not have a father. When you remove pillars from a society, there are consequences. And when we hear about the story of Noah, we're not talking about my children taking a bath, playing with giraffes in a little floating boat. We're talking about God who said, enough. I've had it up to here with you, and now it's time to cleanse the earth. And once again, anybody who has a problem with God cleansing his earth, did you have an ant bring you to trial day when you cleansed your back hill, backyard of an anthill? Because that's what we are to God in even a smaller degree. And when we don't obey him, we're the gnat. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the most famous, famous sermon of all American history, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I would ask and plead with all of you to read it at least once, and I would plead with all preachers to preach the concept of it at least once. How many would like to see Joel Osteen give a crack at that sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Your life is like a spider hanging from a web, and God is deciding whether or not to swatch you into the fire. That is what we are before God. Let us not get it twisted. And this is why the psalmist says in great humility, who is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him so? Why does God care for us, moist robots made out of chemicals and clay? Why does he care for us so? He must have a plan for us to display, display his great love and mercy. And so when we come to the story of Noah and the ark, we're not talking about a God that is being trivial to flood the earth. We're not talking about a God that is unfair, that hasn't counted the cost, or doesn't grieve at the pain and suffering that comes out of that judgment. We're not dealing with that kind of a story. We're dealing with a real God who made us. And as you will soon learn in that passage, he regrets making us. 
which opens up a whole other can of worms for the Christian who believes that God knows everything. Why does God grieve when he knows that they're going to fall away? Maybe this is another good pre, uh, preliminary until we get into the message. Can I go a little deeper with you? You know, because people say this to me all the time. An honesty, uh, an, an honest question, this is honest uh, that comes before. I've heard it sassy, but it comes honestly through people, not through the Karen, the Karen skeptic, you know, person acting like a Karen. But truly someone skeptical, they'll say, well, if God, you know, they'll say, did, did God create Adam and Eve with good intentions? Yes, yes. Did, did God know that Adam and Eve would break those good intentions and, and mess everything? Yes, yes, yes. Well, then why would God create them if he knew that they would mess everything up? How many know that's a good question? It, you know, the attitude determines on how you're going to get the answer. If you come to me uh, very sassy, then I'm going to get you to question why you can question God. I'll take you down that road we just talked before. Why does it matter to you, you know? If he's the potter, you're the clay, get over it. You don't have a moral code. If you're from the goo through the zoo to you, all you're doing right now is spewing hot, hot air. I'll just move on in life, right? Because according to them, that's all we are is hot air. Everybody listening? Okay, which doesn't, uh, that doesn't explain how we can get mind to correspond with nature. Math corresponds with nature, physics, and so forth. They don't have any explanation for that, okay? But, but let's say we avoid that and we come to a sincere person asking this question. If God intended Adam and Eve to have a good life, and yet they had a, a bad outcome, and he knew that the outcome would happen, why did he create them to begin with? Somebody say free will. This answer is the answer, and some people think that it's a cheap answer, but this is the answer. And it's actually not only the answer to this problem, but to all the other problems that will stem from questions like this. Why did God allow people to crucify him? Why does he allow you to uh, pick your nose sometimes? Why does he allow me to smell bad, you know? Why, why, why do we do all these bad? It's free will. Somebody say free will. You have a gift from God called free will. That is the difference. It is of self-determination. It is not caused by somebody else. Now, those that deny, listen to me, deny God, deny free will. How many know that's a problem now? Because who am I debating with? Just you by chemicals or actually somebody that's a you that cares about things? So are you an it being forced to debate with me now or are you a person? Because I can't convince an it of anything else. But if you're a person, then I can change your mind. So once again, you can turn the fool back into his own folly and, sh and have him cut off the branch that he's sitting on. But let's now not, not speak to the fool that's being the atheist and saying, how did God do this? Now let's talk to the Christian that wants to understand how does free will work? These things are great discussions. In God's sovereignty, this is what we mean by sovereignty, God's in control and can do whatever pleases him. In God's sovereignty, he decided to make us free. In our freedom, we now make choices, but he makes consequences. Can I hear an amen if you believe it? So somebody might say, why? I just say, God did or God said. That ends the discussion. At this point, somebody may punt the ball, another Christian may, but I may, I'm not going to. They may say, well, it's just a mystery. No, 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 it's not a mystery. It's a simple answer. Why did God give us free will? Because he wanted to. That's it. Why does God owe us more of an explanation than he wanted to? If I'm creating something today as I doodle on these papers, there's a doodle right here on this one, do I have to give an explanation to you to why I doodle other than I did, I wanted to? No, when you're sitting down to create something with your clay and whatever you're doing, do you have to give a different answer other than that's what I wanted to? 
That's what I wanted to make. Well, why did you make a cup instead of a vase? Why did you make this instead? Because I wanted to. We have to understand, and this is what messes with all of us, including me, and this is what we call the fear of the Lord. There is someone with a desire over us, or excuse me, there is someone over us that has desires and wills that are not ours and do not owe us another explanation. Somebody say the fear of the Lord. I mean, how many know that just puts the fear of the Lord in you? It's like, okay, so there's someone more powerful than me that can do what Thanos does, snap your fingers and everybody go out of existence, and yet he's wanting to talk and deal with me right now. That puts the fear of the Lord in me because he could have left me alone. He could have already snapped the fingers. I wouldn't know any different. He could have, he could have uh, created me and I started off in hell. How many know that could have been a possibility? Or he could have done a, 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 an endless amount of things. So if I'm here and this is the way it is, now I have to accept it. There's no other rational explanation to now come against him that doesn't contradict the very thing I'm doing. In other words, it's like I'm sitting on the lap of God to slap him. So I'm going to use my mind, my logic to argue with the God who gave me a mind and logic and say, I don't like the answer. You did it because you wanted to. How many know he could make a robot and then just program us and say, you love what I do. Beep, boop, beep, boop. I love what you do. You really love what I do. Beep, boop, beep. I really love what you do. How many know that'd be in the discussion? So the very fact that we have a rational mind to discuss God's rational mind and to decide whether or not we like it or we don't like it shows that he's already given us the free will. So what are we so mad about? If you have a free will and you wish you didn't have one, tough luck, it didn't happen that way. And it's not really love. Luck, it's God's plan. You have it, now you've got to deal with it. So let's go back to the story. God creates, he knows bad outcomes. Why does he do it? For his own glory, his own will. That's what he tells us. So what do I get from the story of the Bible now when I look at how this plays out? What do I get about him? Do I, do I see him as a Thanos when I go through the story of the Bible? Because remember, if the story of our Bible, the beginning parts, are good enough for people to try to make contradictions and things they don't like or come up with questions, then I can use that same Bible to give answers and the solutions to the contradictions. So what do I see in my Bible as the bad begins to come? I see that my God cares about what we're suffering. Isn't that what we see in the book of Genesis? Doesn't God care about the suffering of humanity? He comes right to the two brothers when one wants to kill the other. Don't do this. Sin is crouching at your door. And then what happens? Boom, he, he sins against his brother, murders him. God's not cool with that. And then we go further on in the story, Noah. We go further on in the story, Abraham. Further on to Moses and so forth. Do we see a God that doesn't care? The God of the deist. Deism is like God being a bowler. He takes all of humanity and just throws it down the bowling alley and says, you all figure it out. I'm just going to be over here. Deism is a God that is distant. Is that our God of the Bible? No, he's interacting with the people. He even cares about other nations. Though he's going to center on the Jewish people, he has love for different nations. As a matter of fact, as we come out of the book of Gen uh, out of the flood of Noah, God is going to say, "All mankind is made in the image of God, and if anyone slays any of those, then he might he should be slayed." You see, our Bible takes away any ethnocentrism and racism from moment one. We're all created in one race, the human race. And at the end of Noah's uh, flood, we're told the same thing over again. And as a matter of fact, the very things that we're so mad about that go on in the world today is the very reason why he floods that world to begin with. There was murder and wickedness upon the land, rape and all of those things, the Bible says, perversion. And so now we're left with this kind of 
sense of I'm not in control, but the one who is in control cares about me. And yet in my choices, he doesn't force me to make the right one, but he draws me to that right one. And if I refuse, then there's a consequence. Everybody go, aha. Now that explains it. Now the only other one that we don't have time to discuss today is natural evil. But it does need a little bit of an explanation, and that is this. Well, okay, Joe, you explained moral evil, the actions of one human against another. Hitler decided to be Hitler, and then people decided to follow Hitler. Okay, I get it. People make those decisions, and God allows it to play out to show us how bad sin really is. He's allowing hell on earth to come because we didn't want heaven on earth. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Believe it. You are seeing hell on earth because you're not supposed to shake your fist at God when you hear of the injustices of the world. You're supposed to go on your knees and go, oh, God, have mercy. We had the Garden of Eden, but we chose wickedness. We had our brother, but we killed him. We had the chance to serve you, but we wanted a tower to reach you and to tell you what we thought you should do. We had a chance to keep your law, but we worshiped idols instead. We had a chance to accept you as our son, but we crucified you. We had a chance to live for you in the right way of the church, but we made power out of it and control, and we corrupted your ways. You see, that's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to shake our fist at God and go, why did the Catholic Church do this, and then why did the Nazis do this, and why did slave owners do this? We're supposed to, I mean, you can do that, but you're not going to get a different answer other than the people are wicked and evil. Go to Romans 3, please. They're all wicked and evil, the Bible says, and without God, we all deserve wrath. But what is the goodness of our God in the midst of all of this is that he's saving those who want to be saved. In other words, if anyone comes to you and says all of the atrocities of the world are, are there in front of them and they can't see how to believe in God, tell them honestly, with all these atrocities, I have no hope but for God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because my friends, if God doesn't exist, we have them anyway. How many know if we say right now, all of us together, God doesn't exist, how many know children are still dying? How many wars are still happening? See, I would rather face the problems of this world believing in a God who cares and loves me. Because the question isn't why are there bad days? The question is actually why are there good days? Why isn't the whole human race insane? Why aren't we all mentally ill? Why aren't we all handicapped? Why do some of us have bad days, but why do the majority of us get to have good days every single day? You wake up, you have a sound mind, you get to feel the heat of the sun, the breath of fresh air, the heart is beating. Why is this what we call normal life? And then when evil happens, what do we say? Bing, bing, something's wrong. Alarms go off. And I love what C.S. Lewis said, because some people are relativists. Oh, it's all relative. It doesn't matter. Truth is truth for you. He says, then say that to the person who steps on your shoe and on the bus. Well, nobody's a relative when you're a relative this on the bus when they step on your shoe. Hey, you stepped on my shoe, right? Come on. You, you weren't supposed to do that. You ruined my day. You did something you weren't supposed to. We all have an inner voice inside of us that says, it's not supposed to be this way. That's why if we don't see the sun for a while in Chicago, we say it's not supposed to be this way. If we see evil in the world, we go, it's not supposed to be this way. If you wake up and you're mentally uh, groggy and and you're confused, you, you say it's not supposed to be this way. And when we see the mentally ill or the handicapped, no fault of their own. I don't believe in karma. In other words, they sin and deserve such a thing. I'm just saying we're in a cursed world because of what we did. And when we see the mentally handicapped and the actual physically handicapped, we look at them and we wish for better and we do the best we can for them. 
Do we not? Because we know that there's something more. If we see someone in a wheelchair, I want you to experience a bike riding, so they put them on a bike. Or if you see someone that struggles with depression, you want to take them out and experience a good day because you know that there's something better than the handicap. The handicap is not the normal expression of human life. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't mean to put down handicapped people. They are people, and that's why we love them. We don't believe in aborting Down syndrome children and that. But what I'm saying is you, you as someone who is not in that, 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 that disadvantage, you look at them with compassion and say, I'll do everything I can to help you. That's, that's humanity expressing the love of God and divinity. That's, that's the image of God coming through you. But look at what Romans says. Go to verse 5. Uh, excuse me, keep on going down. Romans 3. Look at verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. How many can say amen to that? Because you've heard that in traffic before. People's throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. How many know that's true in most of all politicians? The poison of lips is, uh, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the sinful world looks like. That's what Noah's generation looked like. But here's the problem as we get ready to get into the story. And just look at your neighbor and say, this is the introduction. We really haven't got to the story yet. We're getting there. This is all preliminary, okay? But when you look at Romans chapter 3, how many know? That everybody in the world can't be that way. Because if everybody's like that, then there's no doctors, then there's no teachers, then there's nobody that does any good. So what we see is that this could be the way of everybody if God didn't intervene and help us by his good grace. And you might say, well, pastor, I know good doctors and teachers who don't know Jesus. Yeah, but according to the Christian scriptures, they do that out of the grace of God. We call this general grace. In other words, it's a grace that's given to all of humanity. How many remember when Jesus said, the rain and the sun comes on the just and the unjust? You see, God is still speaking to people. That's why when we do comparative religion, that doesn't disprove Christianity. When you find the similarities, it actually shows they're all just copying from this. Amen? And the same is true with Noah's flood. Do you know that every major population group in the world has a story of a pre-flood, a flood that destroyed their villages or destroyed their people groups? The Babylonians, the Egyptians, even the Native Americans here, all of these people groups sharing the same story of a global flood. But isn't it something that when you read our book, it actually gives you the dimensions of a ship that one of our brothers built in Kentucky, and that's ready to go right now if we need it. The rest of them are like, oh, he built, he built a bamboo hut and it floated on the water, you know? No, that's not going to work. Or another one, he floated, on a, he floated on a, you know, a big old leaf. And they tell these kind of mythological stories. When you read the story of Noah's flood, does it sound like that? No, it's like this many cubits by this many cubits with this kind of wood, with this kind of sealant, two of these kinds of animals. And then oftentimes people say, well, how could you fit all these animals? Remember, he didn't have to bring all the dog kinds. He didn't have to bring a chihuahua and a pit bull and a labrador. All he needed to do was bring two and let them continue to, to uh, populate the world after that. Amen? Well, how did he bring giraffes and elephants? Guess what? He didn't have to bring the biggest one. He could bring the smallest ones. You ever seen small elephants? You ever seen little baby giraffes? That's the ones that he brought. Amen? And if you look at the different um, uh, population groups of animals, it works out perfectly, as well as the population of the human race, if you look back around when we date the Noah's flood and how we have grown exponentially from them. There are many evidences of this flood, not to mention the Grand Canyons and other places like this. It's whether or not you are going to take the Bible's word for it. 
Because you could always find a reason to disbelieve. Oh, well, you know, I don't know about that. Well, I could see how animals, they can reproduce. And yeah, we could get to there in about the last 4,000 uh, 4, years. I could see that. Or I could, you know, I could see Grand Canyon being caused by this. But you know what they'll say? But I could also see this happening. And I could also see this happening. And so they'll always come up with reasons to doubt the evidence we give them. Because how many know it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue? That's why, after, you know, I give these kinds of evidences. I send them to the websites, the scientists. We have paleontologists. We have geologists. We have Christians in every field. As a matter of fact, Christians develop most of, if not all, of those fields. Can I hear an amen? Including the scientific method. So we're not unfamiliar with science. Sorry if you've met one that doesn't care about it. I actually do. Okay. But after I've done all that and I've heard the greatest of debates, there was just one with Professor Dave from YouTube debating Dr. James Tour, one of my favorite Christian scientists. He works with molecular biology. And it was, um, it was a train wreck, the, the debate. This atheist had no respect for our guy, and our guy teaches at Rice University. You can look it up. Dave Farina, James Tour, debate. And tell me if you think it was a chain wreck. <laughs> I think the guy embarrassed himself, and our guy did really good. But here's my point. is at the end of the day, they're still going to say, pa, 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 you know, all of these things. Here's how I became a Christian. I didn't become a Christian by going to visit Noah's Ark in Kentucky being convinced. I became a Christian because I had an experience with Christ. How many have had an experience with Christ? Amen. Now, people may say, well, they've had experiences with Joseph Smith or burnings in their bosoms or, uh, you know, meditational experiences. Very true. I'm not saying others have not had experiences. In our Christian Bible, we give room for demonic experiences and human spirit experiences. It's one of those two, in my opinion. But here's how we can test our experience. Does the experience you have line up with God's Word, which has been tested in trial? In other words, I am not presenting to you Noah's story of the flood and having to allegorize the ship because it says in our, our, our book, he floated upon a palm branch or in a coconut. Amen? Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, let's just be serious. When we go to our Bible, it actually talks to you about a huge ship, which were not common at that time. Nobody in that part of the world had built one that big. And at best, it was happening in the east in China. And it wasn't until years and years later that we could even attempt to replicate this thing. It's only been replicated a few times and tested under hurricane conditions. And guess what Noah's Ark does? It works. Come on, can I hear an amen? And that's why you're here is because it worked. I want to encourage you as we get into this story now to think about it in a new way. Y'all ready? Okay, that was the introduction. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So here's how I would summarize why I take these stories at face value. And someone may say, why well, don't take Gilgamesh's Odyssey, you know, Iliad and the Odyssey the same way or something like this. And I have the Bhagavad Gita, Arjunan and Krishna having uh, a discussion on a battlefield. Why is it, Joe, you take this as historical fact and you don't take the other? I have faith in the God that sent Jesus. Through that, I validate these readings. Now, you may not be a Christian like me, and that may not be good enough for you, and that's okay. You can investigate these things, and many people become Christians afterwards. Some do not. Some do not feel that it's enough to convince them. But here's what I would want to ask you. Do you believe that Noah's Ark and these stories are worth your eternal soul? In other words, doubts you may have about them, do you believe it's worth your eternal soul? I don't think so. 
what I would do is settle first and foremost with Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then move from there. In other words, there have been Christians who think that the Old Testament is a historical myth. In other words, they take things that are true, they mythicize them, and then they give you the morals of life. There are Christians who believe that. I know we wish they weren't Christians who believe that, but they still believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and they take these stories pretty much as historical myth. It would be on the same lines of Lord of the Rings. But how many know Lord of the Rings does provide some great moral benefit? It does. I, I'm the only one raising my hand. That's okay. There are great stories that provide moral benefit. Would it actually surprise you to hear that people have become Christians off of watching Lord of the Rings? There are discussions on um, the Unbelievable podcast where a scholar, I believe she's a PhD of literary arts, became a Christian through J.R.R. Tolkien in The Beauty of Good versus Evil. These are real people who have been convinced through the mythicizing of Christian-based stories that search for something deeper. In her heart, she wished it would be true because there's something so beautiful about good overcoming evil. How many believe that? Amen. So she felt that there was a desire that was awoken in her by that, and then she studied the author who was a Catholic Christian, studied Christianity, and became a Christian out of that. But hear my heart in this. As much as I believe Noah and the ark, it is not a heaven or hell issue. There are Christians who have taken it on those lines as a historic myth. I don't see it that way. How many believe in Noah's ark here today? Amen. So we're one of those, okay? We believe that. But this is what I would say to you. What do you do with Jesus? Because Jesus is someone that we should be able to prove historically. I believe we can. I believe his death, burial, and resurrection speak louder than any miracle that's ever been proposed by any human on this earth. And I do believe when you call on the name of Jesus, you will have experiences that validate that. And if you bring up to me any of those other false experiences, I will have you speak to people from every one of those religions that will show you that they were not the same. In other words, it's a flippant answer to say, well, the Muslim cries and feels this way when they pray. Ask a person who who was once a Muslim and who is now a Christian and asked them if it was the same kind of experience. It wasn't. Though we can be emotional and though they can do that for the Quran and so forth, the experience that we have as Christians is unique to the Christian faith, not only says me, but from all of the converts who have left their religions to come to Christianity at the cost of their lives. One of the movies I would recommend is More Than Dreams. More Than Dreams documents the lives of four Muslims who came to Christ in their context without having Christians preach to them because they had dreams, visions, and miraculous encounters with Jesus Christ, and all of them suffered persecution for becoming a Christian. How many know that's pretty awesome? Amen. So that's not the same, doesn't go in the same boat. Now that we're talking about boats, are you all ready? Amen. So I hope that you believe that God exists. I hope that you believe he will reward you when you earnestly seek him. I then believe as you study these things, as scientists have, you will find that there is a compelling evidence before it. You're not having to stretch your faith so far to believe in what they actually believe, that a rock became a goo that became you, okay? You don't have to believe in that. You, I don't have enough faith to believe in that. How many would just be honest with that? That's on the level of make-believe. 
believe right there, okay? I believe that I was created in the image of God. There's been a human history here, and things have happened like floods, and God has spared those people because of righteousness. Now let's get into it. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he applauded the world and became heir of righteousness. Is that what it says? No, by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, let's go to the book of Genesis. You all ready? Amen. Let's learn this story again. If it's the hundredth time you've heard it, let's learn it fresh and anew. Lord, may this Bible come alive to me. May I learn this story in a way I've never seen it before. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children with them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown." Everybody go, ooh. Are you ready? Come on, are you ready? I believe these Nephilim were a hybrid between angels and humans. You might say, Pastor, that's almost impossible to believe. Just track with me here. Some believe it, some don't. This is a Christian debate. I've gone both sides on this, by the way. And if you disagree with me and you want to have a debate, my only request is you take me out for dinner, you do all the talking, and I get to do the listening, okay? So, Pastor, I don't believe that. I believe this. Okay, where are we going out to eat, and where are you going to try to convince me of this? Red lobster. Okay, that's my favorite. Let's go there. I'll just eat. You just talk. Why do you think this, this, and that, and this? So there's two, argue, uh, the two points here. Sons of God normally means angels, but some people insert just the good guys. So they're humans, but they're known as sons of God. I don't believe that, but that's, that's the other side here. So the sons of God, the good guys, had sex with the, with the women of the, uh, the bad guys, and then from them came these Nephilim. That doesn't really make sense to me because humans having sex with humans don't really produce anything different than humans. Can I hear an amen? So that's why I don't believe that. So the sons of God, being angels, start having sex with humans, and then God sees how wicked that is, and then he sees that they're not doing good with the power that they have out of that, that marriage or out of that sex. He says, I'm going to destroy the world. That makes sense to me. Now, it may not make the kind of sense that you can uh, you know, show in a laboratory today, but just remember this. Anytime someone has a problem with me talking about angels, I ask them, what do you think about aliens? And then how many know they get real excited? Oh, wow, let's talk about aliens. Forget angels, let's talk about aliens. Well, do you think there's an alien race that could have sex with the human race and make a byproduct? Oh, for sure, that happened in Star Trek episode 142. Of course that can happen. Elves and humans and all these mystical, yeah, mythical creatures. Yeah, it's happened before in myth and it can happen with aliens. What I say to them is what you consider aliens, I consider to be angels and demons. Now, this is my worldview, and it's up to you whether you believe it or not. But I believe in the heavens there are angels and demons. And these heavenly realms are different dimensions. 
These dimensions interact with our dimensions. In Genesis chapter 19, when two angels, just go there quickly, please. When two angels, Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, will go further than this than I ever can. Michael Heiser, Unseen Realm. He just passed away. He was one of our best uh, Old Testament scholars who wrote on these things. The two angels flapped their wings and arrived in Sodom as, you know, as ethereal creatures. Is that what it says? No, two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting at the gateway. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he starts hanging out with them. Do you see the, he washes their feet. Do you see the interaction that we can have with angels? So is it possible that an angel could have came down and said, there ain't nothing wrong with a little bit of bum and grind? Could an angel do, well, it seems like the angel did. Okay, now, if you don't believe that, that's up to you because there's a lot of questions there. How do they have seed or semen? How could that work? Uh, are they made like us in that way? I don't have all of the details, but going back to our passage in Genesis, if I take the Bible serious at face value, it seems like there's a crossbreeding happening here. And it seems like the Nephilim are a type of creature that don't belong here. And these types of creatures become heroes or, in other words, they become the champions. Now, what if I said to you, through the stories of aliens and the stories of myth, they're all imitating this? Now it would start to make sense. Because what if the show Ancient Aliens was actually ancient demons? See, what if demons were teaching flight? What if demons were teaching pornography? What if demons were teaching technology? You see, even in the time of Elijah, when he gets taken up to heaven, it doesn't say he's carried on angels' wings. It says a chariot comes and takes him. In other words, they, so, there's some kind of a mechanical device or a, a putting together of a, a, a device of travel that he goes on. Could it have been a spaceship? Could it have been what we would consider a spaceship? I am open to all of that. Why? Because angels and demons can manipulate with things, good ones, bad ones. Good angels, you can wash their feet. You can eat meals with them. You can hang out with them. The stories that Billy Graham told in one of his books about angels coming when people were unaware, helping them out of tough situations and then disappearing. These have been notable stories in all cultures and in all people groups, but especially among Christians. So good angels, and what about bad angels? People have said those same kind of things about demons. So in some way, these creatures came down and began to interfere with humanity. God then says, I've had enough, and now I'm going to take out humanity. Go back to verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay, does everybody see that? Okay, now hold your place right there before we get to the judgment of humans. We're going to go to 1 Peter and see what he does to these angels who are being naughty. Everybody say naughty angels. Amen. Go to 1 Peter. Chapter 3, and look at verse 19. Let's start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned what? The imprisoned spirits, remember angels are spirits, those who were disobedient long ago when God awaited, when God, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
Does everybody see that? Now, someone might say, well, those are just the human spirits. Those are not angelic spirits. We'll now go to 2 Peter. I do believe, you know, the the unsaved spirits, human spirits are there, but I do believe it's speaking towards the angelic spirits as well. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. How many are okay with learning some things like this? How many think this is a little bit different than the story maybe you heard as a child, right? So I'm trying to help you. We're all learning. Like, wow, dude, like Noah's flood was started by angels having sex with men, creating half-angel human creatures. Yep, that's how the story starts. So hopefully you're learning some goodies. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare, what? Angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, there would be the humans, when he brought about the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So if God did all of this, can he do it again is what Peter's message is. We're in the middle of an argument he's making there. But how many now can connect 1 Peter with 2 Peter? So we know human spirits are already in hell. We know that's, that's an obvious thing according to the Bible. But what does it say about these angels? It says they're there too when they sinned around that time. Can I give you some more things to possibly blow your mind? That means there was more than one fall of angels. Oftentimes we look at Revelation and the third of the stars coming out of heaven and we say that's where Satan and his fall happened. That is an allegorical book in the future. It is not recording actual history. So we need to be careful with that because I've met great Christians that can convince you that's actually of the time of Revelation, the end time judgment. That that's when the enemies of God start falling down, okay? But we have taken that and think that covers everything in the past. That may not be necessarily so. And here's your first evidence of that. So now just connect it together. Satan has already fallen in the Garden of Eden when he's there tempting. Can I hear an amen? But it now seems according to the Bible that there's another fall that happens and those get punished at that time, the time before Noah's flood. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, so just just take it all together. And then Michael Heiser makes a third time at the Tower of Babel. He believes they sin again, and they try to convince angels to convince Nimrod and others to build the Tower of Babel, which has less evidence because we don't see that exactly happening. But guess where we do see it? In the book of Enoch, which is a a pseudepigrapha book. That means pigrapha, meaning like, you know, writing pseuda in someone's name. So the writing is in the name of Enoch, but we know it doesn't go back to Enoch. So we don't accept it. No Christian denomination accepts the book of Enoch except the Ethiopian church, which is one of the first churches, which does make you scratch your head and go, what's going on there? But here's the way I and others take the book of Enoch, and there's multiple books in the book of Enoch, and some are disputed more than others. Here's how I take it. It was considered to be fiction of the second to third century before Christ during that time when they were apocalyptic, coming into captivity, and they began to write stories to tied together they're in time. So in other words, it's their version of an Avengers movie. Can I hear an amen to that? Just track with me. That's what I believe. But here's the thing. Go to the book of Jude. The book of Jude actually quotes the book of Enoch. 
Why is that important? Because God, in his sovereignty, when he brought about Scripture to us, allowed Jude to recall the story of something in Enoch and bring it to us in the actual Scriptures. So now, whether or not Enoch was originally ever intended to be Scripture, this part of Enoch has become Scripture. Go with me now to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter there. And then see in... Somebody shout out the chapter, uh, the verse, please. Which verse is it? 14, thank you. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, these wicked folks at the end time. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the, all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoke against him. How many times do you see the word ungodly there? Ungodly acts, ungodliness, ungodly sinners. Now let me tie this together. In the book of Enoch, it mentions angelic spirits during the time of the Tower of Babel and their in part into the humans there, teaching secret knowledge, using it to defy God. So if you look at Michael Heiser and other Old Testament scholars, this is now a proposal for you to consider or not consider, uh, you know, to believe or not believe. It's not a heaven or hell issue. But could it possibly be that angels during the time before Noah's flood began to interbreed with humans? This led to the humans living wicked lives. There was a judgment that came. Then after the tower of uh, uh, excuse me, after the flood, before the Tower of Babel, these spirits come back again, do similar kinds of things. That's why there are giants in the land after the flood, because people say if they all were destroyed in the flood, how did they survive? They come back and do similar kinds of things, and then those are the giants that David then has to face. That's up to you. I don't know uh, how to convince you more of it than what I did right now. That's not what I'm an expert in. But how many have something now to think about? Okay, now let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. That's just something to think about. Now going back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim, these hybrid creatures were on the earth in those days and also afterward. You see how it says an afterward? So how would, we, how would they get there afterward if everybody's destroyed in the flood? There must be a third time when they come down. So the first time is with Satan, and there is no sex there going on. The second time is when they come down, and there's sex there with Noah's people or his generation. And then the third time is right around the Tower of Babel. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so that's how you would tie it together. So now, what happens? Every inclination... Or excuse me, verse 5, God saw how wicked the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Now, is this only because of the Nephilim? No, it's now their choice. They're now following these heroes of renown. Like if you can think of it in our, uh, our stories about uh, the Avengers, they're following the Lokis. They're following the bad characters of their own choice, but they're wicked on their own. It's not just because of the Nephilim. They're there on their own. Now, please highlight verse 6, because anybody who has an issue with our God flooding the whole world better start right here, because it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. You cannot take the story of the flood serious, according to the Bible, without seeing that the heart of the Lord was broken. 
So whatever is going to happen next is not God trivially just treating us as we would treat ants or as we would treat a spider. Though he could, and Jonathan Edwards and other preachers are great to remind us of that, that isn't how he looks at us. He looks at us with a troubled heart. Now, why did he still allow it to happen? Because he didn't want robots. When he said, I'm making you like this in my image, he didn't want to beep, boop, beep, boop to program you. I'm good with this. I'll not eat the apple. You know, I won't eat the fruit. He didn't want that. In God's plan, he would rather deal with all the pain that's going to come out of this and have genuine followers, children, creation love him than to have never done it or to have done it only as robots. Does everybody get that? How great is God's love for us then? See, come on, take a moment and think about Noah's flood here from this point. How great is God's love for us? That he created objects that would break his heart. I've talked about this before, and it seems almost a sacrilegious or a bit, you know, irreligious. But hear, hear this as an example. Imagine us creating the Simpsons, them going so awry that we regret creating them, but then entering into the Simpsons... So that at the end, Bart and Homer can kill us. That is what God is doing in this sense. And I don't mean to say it flippantly, but he is entering into what we would consider ridiculous compared to his power. Like you becoming an equal of Bart Simpson, a two-dimensional cartoon, is ridiculous. And then to allow a two-dimensional cartoon to kill you. But imagine you loving that which you made so much, that you would do that. See, God enters into his creation because he loves us so much that he has regretted making us when we act the way we act. But he doesn't totally destroy us. He finds someone righteous, as we're going to find out. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures, and all that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now remember, we're reading Hebrews 11, so we're not supposed to look at, at Noah as someone we can't relate to. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, is the exact opposite of that. We're not supposed to go, oh, oh look at Noah, I can't be like him. No, the, the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is be like Noah. Be like Noah. And, and the idea we're supposed to get from that is everyone could have been like Noah. But the world became so wicked, think about this, that if God is just, and we truly believe he's just, how many believe he's just? Come on, that if God is just, then he only found Noah. So imagine the world going that awry, as we read in Romans 3, that no one wants to be different than that, that there wasn't an honest one among them. There wasn't one seeking after God. There weren't people willing to sacrifice and do kind things for others, even what we now see in other religions, other people groups, right? So all of them were living according to that way. So he says, I regret them, but Lord, but, but the Lord found favor, uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Keep going, quickly. 
Now, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Now, notice that Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Noah built an ark, and by his life, by his faith, he condemned the world of that time. But notice this, way back then, when there wasn't anybody applauding him, when there was nobody around him to celebrate him, he walked faithfully with God. Do you see how relevant this becomes in your life right now? Let's just pause right now. Let's just all make this super relevant. Imagine being in a culture where they're all Nazis, all of them, and you're the only one saying, I won't go along with this. And instead of being applauded, you're the one ridiculed. You're the one persecuted. You're the one ostracized. What we're supposed to learn from Noah is that he still stood up for God and said, I'm not going along with it even if my family is the last one living for God. Because according to the story of the Bible, they had all received the same tales or the same stories of the creation of the world and the same commands, but they had all rejected them. Well, I heard about Adam. I heard that God did this and this. But you know what? I don't see him around anymore. I heard about Cain getting cursed because he killed his brother. But I don't see Cain anymore. I heard that he told us not to murder each other because we're made in the image of him. But I don't see him anymore. And when I kill somebody, look, his blood spills on the ground. There's no punishment. I can get away with whatever I want. One of the persecutors of Richard Rombrand, you can, you can watch the movie that tells his story, Martyred for Christ, uh, Tortured for Christ. In Romania, during the time of communism, one of the prison guards who was the head torturer came to him as he was torturing him and said to Richard Rombrand, this is what he told this dear Christian, I thank your God that I am alive at this time that I can do all the evil in my heart towards you. Think of the reality that man said. Uh, the Think of the real thing that he said. That, that he understood what was happening, didn't he? He didn't create himself. He, he didn't make himself. He didn't give himself that earth and that air and that common sense. But now that he was here, he could choose not to follow his conscience. And he was happy because he knew, I mean, America in the 40s was nothing like Romania, right? And he knew that he was in a special place in time that if he wanted to act out his evil... He could do it now. There's a book that was written by a psychologist that's basically called, you know, The Nazi Next Door. And it talks about how these regimes in China, Cambodia, uh, you, know, you know, Germany and all these places, within 20 or 30 years, how people groups became, um, you know, basically homicidal maniacs. And he talks about it could happen at any moment. And how many know that basically started to happen during the COVID frenzy? whether or not you got a shot or not. And I was never against vaccines and so forth, but I was being told if I didn't get this vaccine and my children got sick, that I now deserve to die. Imagine if that was being publicized from the television, being said by our president, and then pictures would be drawn of me not getting the, the jab, looking like a rat that deserved to die as that propaganda was spread in those kinds of countries of Jews. Imagine how long it would take before my neighbor would say, arrest him. They don't deserve to be my neighbor. I could only, not, not my neighbor, I have a great neighbor, but I'm just saying that, you know, how long would it take before my neighbor would hand me in and then march right over to my house and say, I'll take all this stuff. They were stealing from the Jews. They stole from the Africa with the slaves. People have become 
those, what we fear the most, within a generation. So when the Bible says the earth was corrupt in Noah's day, I don't have to use my imagination too much. All I have to do is watch a few documentaries about Germany, Romania, Cambodia, the killing fields, the revolution in China, right now in Korea, the concentration camps. What was that world like? If my Bible says it was corrupt and it was evil, I believe it. But guess what else I also believe? That Noah was righteous. That if you listen to the stories going on, whether it's a Schindler's List or, or uh, you know, the different ones that hid the Jews in their homes, the hiding place, you know, and, and these different people, I see Noah's being that kind of person. He's doing the righteous thing, though nobody else wants it. Now keep going. So God said, I'm going to put an end to the earth. Now what does he say in verse 14? So make yourself an ark out of coconuts and find palm trees. In a lotus plant. Now, is that what it says? Find an ark of cypress wood. You can learn about that when you go to the Noah's Ark, about the benefit of cypress wood being in water. Make rooms in it. Coat it with what? Pitch. Inside and out. Boy, that's a sealant, isn't it? Wow, okay. Make rooms in it. Coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it. Listen to this. Make a roof for it, leaving below the, uh, leaving below the roof and open one cubit high all around. Why would you need that? Ventilation. Somebody say ventilation. Oh, wow, you work in ventilation. Where's that? Well, I hear the air conditioning on, but it has to get air from somewhere, doesn't it? Leave that ventilation, those decks there for ventilation. Put a door uh, in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark the two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to be kept alive. You are to take every kind uh, of food that is to be eaten and store it as food for you and for them. Highlight verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded. Somebody say, I will do all that God commanded. Now, brother, would you please put up the ark at the, uh, the ark display in Kentucky because this is the modern version of this. Brothers and sisters, this has been tested. I was watching a Navy um, documentary or a film about the Navy ships and how they build them in these uh, basically in these warehouses that have pools of water, and then they build them to, to scale to uh, test their buoyancy. The Ark of the Covenant, I mean, excuse me, the Ark that Noah was in has been tested that same way, and it could survive all of the water. So let's get this beautiful one right here in the middle, please, top right there, right up here. Look where I'm pointing. Thank you, sir. How many think that's pretty amazing? You think that thing could float? Absolutely. You think it could stay, you know, upright? Absolutely, it has. They've tested it. This is amazing that God told them to make it like this. Can you fit all the major kinds of animals? Absolutely. When you break down the kinds of animals on the earth, I think they've broken it down to maybe like 25,000. They have all the details. More than enough room. Bring in the little, you know, baby squirrels. How many of those squirrels aren't going to take up that much amount of space, you know? A little squirrel. Bring in a little rabbit, a little beaver. 
you know, bringing these little things, right? 25,000 kinds of animals. I forget the exact number, but not, these guys have taken this serious. You could say they are playing the biggest make-believe trick on us, or the Bible told us something here. I don't, I, I'm not ashamed of this. I know some people in the 21st century are ashamed of stories like this, and, you know, Bill Maher and others make fun of I'm not ashamed of this. I'm proud of this. This is what my people, as the Christian godly people of the past, did as obedience to God. And that ventilation that goes around through there allowed them to have enough air to breathe and to be able to have those three levels with doors and to have that air ventilate through there so you wouldn't die of all the methane gas, you know, from the cows and different things. And to be able to take the food and to feed them and then to be able to live there and sustain life. And then now to see how the earth came from, uh, the earth's population came from this. If you look at a population graph and where we have come from, it can be dated to the time of Noah's flood. Now let's go back to Hebrews quickly and closely. How many have learned something today about that story? I hope that you did. What happened when that door shut? The rains began to come, and the Bible says they actually came from the depths of the earth. Do you know that we have now discovered, they never knew this back then, but we have now discovered the fault lines in our ocean that bring forth the waters. The Bible says that's what broke forth. So not only did the water come from the heavens, it also came from within the deeps. This is why this water that was not used to being there, because if you think of right now, and I've, I've researched this, because I've, I've wondered, do we ever lose water? Unless it goes into outer space and evaporates, our water table or the amount of water we've had has been exactly the same. But before Noah's flood, it was a lot less. Well, where did that water come from? It came from underneath the earth. That's why, as the Bible says, the mountains moved. And so when those things happen, mountains move. And this is what I now find to be interesting. The only difference between us and non-Christian geologists, non-Christian, you know, uh, people who study these things, is they say it takes millions and, you know, years to have happen. We believe it happened in a matter of days. That's the only difference. You ask them, why are there oysters the size of cars on top of Mount Everest? Why is there sea life in some of our high, you know, uh, found in fossil records on some of our highest mountains? Well, they're going to say mountains moved as the different things of the plates shift. Like, we're all going to agree with that. We're going to ask them, how long did that take? And they're going to say millions of years. And, and that's the same thing with the Grand Canyon. Well, how did the Grand Canyon form? Well, it formed from water. Well, how long did it take? Well, the Colorado River started here, and it went through, and then a couple of years later, it went through there. No, we we just think that was the drainage, just pulling out the plug, and there it goes. And they've just, and, and of course, the Christians have demonstrated that it can happen at any time. And matter of fact, when you think about the Ice Age and people talk about that, how did woolly mammoths get frozen with food still in their, in, in their bellies? How is this preservation so intact when the Ice Age is supposed to be millions of years ago? The Ice Age was a result of the, uh, the atmosphere of the earth changing after all of that liquid came into our earth. That caused the great storms to come, and that caused what we would see now as tsunamis and also as storms, as uh, uh, the Ice Age movie shows you. Anybody ever seen the cartoon Ice Age? You know, where did that storm come from? Where did all of those cold, uh, you know, the, those storms come from? If you study how the water entering our atmosphere, if it was being, you know, brought back in, because remember our water table changed. We now have all this extra water. And if you're living over a place of the, uh, the world where it's going to be cold, a lot more is coming down. Can I hear an amen? So we have explanations for it. Whether they believe that or not, that's up to them. But notice what we are supposed to get from this. That Noah was a person of righteousness, and by him living by faith, everybody get this, he rightly condemned the world. 
In other words, if Noah would not have been there at that time, there possibly, this is what I get from it, possibly could have been the excuse, well, we didn't know any better. Noah showed you did know better, but you didn't want to do it. Can I tie this to your life right now? Why are we here right now? To condemn the world by our faith. They can be saved by it or they can be condemned by it. Someone from Chicago stands before God in judgment day. Well, everybody in my city was liberal. That's why we killed babies. Nope, Joe wasn't. Javier wasn't. Monica wasn't. Griselda wasn't. Jason wasn't. You see, by God leaving us here, what does Jesus say? As the salt of the earth, our faith now is their judgment. Think about that. Our faith is their judgment. In other words, there will be no excuse in any generation of those who go to hell because they didn't obey God. Quickly, about the children, because we believe children are innocent, though they'll suffer the punishment of their parents as a nation, I believe children were spared and brought to heaven, just as I do now aborted children or children of all religions. I don't believe you are held accountable to the judgments of God until you can make a choice. I don't believe children are given that kind of choice until they become into teenagers, into young adulthood. What age do I think that starts at? I think it starts at the age that the bears devoured the kids when they mocked Elijah. So I think those are teenagers. Can I hear an amen? So teenager, you might be old enough to go to hell, so make your right choice. I'm serious. I believe that. Teenagers will be held accountable. What we would consider teenagers now, they would consider children. Children would be all the way up until adulthood. So no one was judged improperly. So in other words, if a child would have went to judgment and said, I literally didn't know anything right from wrong. I was just a kid playing with my dolls and then the floods came. Do you think God is saying to them, I'm sending you to hell because of your parents? No, the Bible says that the child cannot bear the sins of their parents. They can bear a punishment, but not the eternal kind of punishment. In other words, children can suffer because of what their parents do, but they cannot be eternally judged by what their parents do. And everybody said, amen. So when Jesus said, let the children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I believe that is a blanket of grace that's over every child. So now you shouldn't have anything against our God from punishing these families. If children were brought to heaven, they were spared from growing up and becoming like their families. Now the next one that people might say was, you know, what if they had forgotten in their human history and uh, they, didn't, they didn't live close to Noah, so they, they didn't have the traditions like others did. Go to Romans chapter 1 quickly in closing as the keyboard is comes, please. They would have been held accountable by their conscience. Somebody say their conscience. So in other words, to be held accountable by God, you must know the good you ought to do and not do it, for that is sin. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, that's our definition of sin, to know the good you ought to do and not to do it. It's a violation of God's law. What if I don't know all the right to do? Okay, what does Romans chapter 1 say? Scroll down for me, please. Scroll down. In Romans chapter 1, starting around verse 18, it's going to tell us what we have to know here. The wrath of God is being, and that's even in our present day, the wrath of God is still here, though it's not like floods. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their what? Wickedness. Okay? So only the wrath of God, everybody get this, only the wrath of God comes on those who are godless 
and are wicked in suppression of the truth. So right there, is God now free to judge everybody else in this way as being wicked if they do wickedness? Yes or no? Yeah, so he's, so I have just shown you quickly, I'll go a little bit more in depth, of how they are going to be judged, these other people. But remember, the wrath of God, in, in other words, what you deserve, you will uh, what you get is what you deserve because only God's wrath is against godless and wicked people. Now, how do we know that he'll do that even if they didn't have all of the traditions or all of the books or whatever? Notice this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without what? excuse. So anyone that got judged that day and is in hell from Noah's generation, are they with an excuse or without an excuse? Without an excuse. Now, if someone was not wicked, which the Bible says they were all wicked, so I take God at his word. But let's say that's what we would consider an overgeneralization. God doesn't mean every, every, every. He just means every as a whole. Sometimes the Bible does mention things like that. Paul said all Cretans are liars as he's writing the book to them in Crete. How many know the people receiving that book are not liars? Okay, they're receiving Titus, and Titus is in Crete. He's not a liar, but he's in Crete. But Paul makes the statement, quoting from one of their prophets, all Cretans are liars. So could, could it be an overgeneralization? Let's entertain that for a second. Now go to chapter 2 of Romans. Go to chapter 2. What if not every, every, everyone was wicked, and yet that storm came to them? So we've already talked about the children. We've talked about those who deserve wrath. Now go to chapter 2, verse 12 of Romans. Same context. All those who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. So if they didn't have the law and they still sin, they're going to be judged by that. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So there's not going to be an excuse. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now highlight verse 14. This is very important. Even when the Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, what came from Moses and the Jewish people, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Everybody go, ah. So let's just imagine the last scenario of Noah's flood, there happens to be a good guy out there taking care of his family, and before you know it, all these waters are coming. Like as if you were there in Japan that day when the bomb came down, and you're like, I hate these guys too, Americans. I don't want to be here. And then you blow up too. What does God say happens at that point? What you did according to what you knew was right, that became a law for you, and now you will be judged by that. Verse 15. They show, these people show that the requirements of the law are written on their what? Their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times what? Defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So now notice this. Your secrets will be judged based on your conscience when Jesus judges you. 
Well, I didn't know that. Your conscience is going to come up and be like, yeah, you did. I told you all the time not to do that. I thought OnlyFans was part of my sex education. No, you knew not to look at that. You remember that weird feeling you had when you went there? That was me. God's going to be like, yep, tell them, conscience. Well, I was raised in a family where we cussed everybody out, and that's what felt right. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I told you when you cussed out your friend, you weren't supposed to do that and blame it on your parents and your brother who always cussed you out. I told you you weren't supposed to live like that. Look at what the Bible literally says. Their consciences also bearing witness. I bring forth Cynthia's conscience now to bear witness on the stand. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. And I think her conscience is going to be like, she's awesome. She loved Jesus. Do you see how this is amazing? So to tie this together before we make the last application, be at peace, brothers and sisters. There is no injustice here. The judgment of God that was in the form of wrath and then eternal damnation was on those who have no excuse. Children, kingdom of God. What happens to them in the world to come? Christians debate. They may be the millennial kingdom citizens. Third group, what about if it wasn't every, every, everybody, and yet they died in that same place? Well, then God judges them just like he judges everybody else who has not heard the law, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're judged by their conscience. So what about those lost tribes? Okay, we are missionaries, and we go there, and guess what happens when we go there? We hear a lot of these stories that confirm exactly what we said. And there are those who say, I don't want to follow our conscience. I want to worship my ancestor in the form of this tree and go to a witch doctor. Guess what? They're going to be held accountable for that because there's no excuse for that. Just because we see people living in tribal lands doesn't mean they're stupid. They know that tree is not their ancestor. Just like you know you're a woman or a man by what you're born as. But we play make-believe here too, don't we? And there's no excuse. So sometimes people tell me, well, oh, what about them? What about them? They're going to be judged just like you, Bubba. And right now, you're not them. You're getting more than them. So you're going to be held more accountable. Going now to the application. Somebody say, make it plain. Thank you for that wonderful Sunday school lesson. Here it is now, quickly. Going back to the passage in Hebrews, please. You and I are called to live by faith, even if the world around us doesn't. I didn't choose to be born in this time. I know I think back at other times and cultures, man, wouldn't it be awesome to live at this time or when Leave it to Beaver was around or when this was happening. Yeah, sure, that could have been cool. Yeah, I get it. But you know what? I'm not living at that time. I'm living at a time when people hate Christianity. A lot of them do. I'm living at a time that when I preach about the sexual morality that the Bible commands, they think I'm a bigot. I think I'm a nice guy, but they don't like me. But you know what? That's not an excuse. It's time for our faith to come out. It's time for us, as 2 Peter said about Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. Can I have my family come up here in closing? Would you give them a hand clap as they come? Because they're embarrassed. They're church kids, but we love them. Come on up here, Nancy. Come on up here, Bethany, Hannah, wherever they're at. You see, Noah not only went into the ark by himself, his wife was with them. How many want to go to the kingdom of God with your spouse? Come on, how many want to go to the kingdom of God with your spouse, I said? How many want husbands and wives today to live for Jesus? But not only that, the Bible says he took three of his boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth with their three wives. If I had to go today on an ark, I would want to bring enough spouses for every one of these six beautiful children. Because if we're starting over the human race, we're starting it over beautiful and blessed. Amen. As for me 
In my house, we love the Lord. And I think about each one of you. This is just a little dad talk in front of the church here. About how each one of you has a precious heart for Jesus. And how you're going to be in this world and here. People sometimes make fun of our Jesus. And they're going to make fun of your mommy and daddy. And they're going to say, why do you listen to them? My mommy lets me dress up as a boy even though I'm a girl. And my mommy lets me watch this show and my daddy lets me go to this concert. And they're going to try to make fun of you. But I want you to say back to them, I listen to my mommy and daddy because they listen to Jesus. And I want to be like my mommy and daddy because they like, they're like Jesus. And teenagers, my cool ones right here, how many know kids are cool when they get to this age? They don't recognize me anymore. They're too cool for school. I did sheesh the other day over on the way here. She's like, stop it. First of all, I had on worship music and I was rapping to it. Like in between the lines, I was like, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you so much. And sheesh. And I went like that. She's like, stop it. I will never stop it. I will never stop it. And let me just show you how things come around. This right here, I had this when I was her age from a Harley Davidson shop. Used to keep my big old wall and a chain link right there. Everything comes around. My friends used to wear those Chuck Taylors too. So listen to me, cool teenagers. People are going to try to tell you, wait till you get out your parents' house, and then you get to do everything you want. It's so much better this way. You get to listen to what you want to. You get to date who you want to. You get to talk like how you want. You get to smoke weed. It's even legal, man. Look, Lucas, I'm going to take you to the dispensary right down there in Wicker Park. They're going to try to tempt you that way. And at that point, you're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to stay in Daddy's Ark? Or do you want to go out there in the world when that flood comes? Because this is what I pray for you, and I pray for every family in here. That when it's time for me to go, like my best friend Brandon went just a couple days ago. They don't take me serious when I cry. They laugh at me. That when it's my time to go, and I'm not here anymore. I don't care if, they, if they're preachers and all of that. I just want them to preach the gospel. You get my point? I just want to hand the baton and say I was a high school dropout. If the flood would have came November 4th, 1995, I would have deserved to be there in that flood. If the rains would have came that day, my parents would have went to heaven without me. But I thank God that I got to see November 5th. 1995 because that day that door was open for me and I went into it not as a preacher not as somebody that had to impress anybody else I went into it broken I went into it hurt I went into it mad that the world lied to me Cypress Hill told me I just want to get high and I thought I would be high and be happy they lied to me my girlfriends, they lied to me 
He said, oh, this is what you need. This is what you need. My friends lied to me. You need power. You need respect. We would get in fights. We would steal. And I came that day to Christ broken and angry at the world. This doesn't work. And I'm just telling you, as I came into that ark, and I know many of you can relate to me because I see, I see your heads nodding. Man, that was the best day of my life. And I'm bringing everybody I can into that ark. And I'm handing that baton to my children. And I was praying the other day because I was teaching global missions class about doing mission work. We're raising up a Bible college here in this uh, church. And I was sending them the video of Richard Wombrand being persecuted in, uh, in, in Romania and in uh, the persecution of the Chinese church. And tears were coming down my eyes, and I was crying for them. But then in a moment, the Lord put it in my heart. You're not just crying for them. You're not just grieved for them. You're also grieved for your own children. Because they're going to grow up in a generation where they're going to be treated in many of the same ways. And I started thinking about Lucas. Come stand up here for me, please. I started thinking about Lucas. What is it going to be like? When he's 50 years old, which is about 40 years from now, should the Lord tarry. And they pop off that garbage like they did before with the COVID stuff. But this time, it's getting closer to the mark of the beast, if not the mark of the beast. You tracking with me? And now Lucas has to go in hiding, like my brothers and sisters do around the world right now. And this is what the Lord put in my heart. He just told me a story like this so I could get it. He gave me an image of him being like Richard Rombat now arrested in his country for serving Jesus. And then the Lord had me think about what he would be like in jail serving Jesus. And Richard Rombat told a story like this, that when the preachers would preach, it wasn't a matter of if they would get tortured more that day, it was just a matter of when. So when they would hear them preaching, they would go and get the one preaching, drag him out of the cell, torture him for hours, and bring him back. And you know what Richard said they did when they came back, beat it, beat it up, bloodied and bruised. They looked at their brothers and said, where did I leave off? Where did I leave off? And so Richard Rombat said, they beat and we preached. And I started thinking, what if that was my son being beat every day for the sake of Christ? And then the Lord put this in my heart because, you know, I wear this bracelet at every meal. They hear me pray for the church. This is what I would hope he would say. Brothers, be encouraged. My father told me about times like this. He would preach on days that were beautiful. And the sun was shining and there was nothing wrong in the world. But he told me there were days coming when we would suffer like Noah. We're not alone. And I could see in that jail cell somebody saying back to him, come on, Lucas, I think we're forgotten here. We're forgotten. They don't care about us anymore. We're the scum of society. And I could see him saying at that point, we're not forgotten. If God remembered Noah, he remembers us. And my father at lunch tables and dinner tables and celebrations and birthday parties when the food was set before us would pray for the persecuted church 
I know someone's praying for us now. We are not alone. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how real Noah's world will become to us, but I know Jesus said it like this, before the Son of Man comes, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and going and to and forth to marriage, and they will be acting as if nothing is coming until the day the flood comes. And brother or sister, it may come in our lifetime, It may come in their lifetime. But where will you be? Where will I be? I pray that we'll be holding on to our faith. And as our brothers and sisters from around the world are living it out even now, we will take our place with them and say, you will not suffer alone. We come with our Lord and Savior who suffered on a cross and we come with our brothers and sisters of the ancient church and those who suffer in this modern church and we say to God be the glory. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. My life for his glory. My life for his glory. How many Noahs do I have in this place today? Would you stand up with me now? Would you bless the Lord? Thank you family. You may be seated. First counseling session's on me when you need it. Church kids will need some help after this. Amen. Half kid. My daddy used to bring me up on stage and cry in front of us. Band and altar workers, would you come? How many feel it today? More than just my emotion, but the Holy Spirit. That's why I guard myself from getting messy up here in emotion, because once I start, I can't stop. I get messy. I don't have a cute cry. But listen, Liam, this is not about my tears. It's about your heart. Are you going to stand up and be like Noah in this generation? I was driving by Barrington High School the other day, and I was thinking I was going by 90210. You might not remember that, but it was a show in my day with the cool kids. And I was thinking about you, and I was thinking about the Baker kids out there in the suburbs, and I'm like, I wonder who lives for Jesus out here. I wonder who's standing up for righteousness because we're praying for your school. We're praying for your testimony. And you may feel like you're the only one at your lunch table. You may feel like you're the only one there that believes in Jesus. But I'm telling you, brother, if God did it for Noah and kept him, he will keep you. We are here for a reason. I took a lot of time to get up to that point. I hope you got it today. We are here for a reason. If you're alive, you are here. I cannot promise you good times. I cannot promise you safety when you walk out this door. I cannot promise you a culture that will accept you. But I can say this. Be of good courage and take heart, my brother and sister. For though this world has many troubles, Jesus Christ has overcome them all. And there is a place waiting for us. There is a place waiting for those who serve Jesus. Heaven has a home for those who kept Christ in His Word. Though the earth may curse our names, heaven will write our names on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. The towers of heaven will remember the saints of God. And then a city I used to live in had a song that they would sing at funerals. Oh, and the saints go marching in. 
Oh, when the saints go marching in. Listen, they would sing that after funerals at the, the funeral parlor. It would be a second line in New Orleans, baby. That you could hear it coming down your block with the trombone. You could hear this come. When the saints go marching in. You see, they held on to an old tradition. That is when someone dies, we start marching. Why? Because that's what we're going to do when Jesus comes back. We're going to march right into the kingdom of God, and we're going to be with God forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, hold your head up high during these years of testing and trial. Be like no one until Christ comes back. Amen? Father, watch over us today as we get ready to dismiss. Help us never to forget who you are and what you did for us. I pray, Lord, you will raise us up to be like Noah in this generation. If you're here today as I'm praying and you don't know the Lord, You can even come down here now and accept him or accept him at your seats. Confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be saved before it's too late. The rest of us, come on, pray out to Jesus. Pray and ask Jesus to make you like Noah before we go. And anyone who needs prayer, make sure you get it today. Even you can come now. Don't leave out here with fears. Don't leave out here with doubts. Don't leave out here questioning your faith. Walk out of here like Noah, strong in the faith. I'm going to pray for you now before we dismiss. Father, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you to come to know you, Jesus. I pray for them to get in that ark today like Noah. And I pray for all of us who already know you, that we serve you all the days of our life. And that, Lord, if you use our faith as a way to show the guilt of this generation, then, Lord, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it, Father, with my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Can you bless him one more time, saints?